Thank you for tuning in to the audio podcast of Renaissance Church, a new church plant located in Montreal, Quebec. For more information about Renaissance Church, please check out our website, renaissancemtl.com. If you would like more information about joining the launch team of Renaissance, or if you would like information on how you can partner with us to see the gospel advance in Montreal, please send us an email at renaissance.mtl at gmail.com. for being here and um, for braving the snow and the cold weather. So I'm going to start, so we're continuing in our James series, so faith produces blank, and so we'll get into that in a moment. Um, But I'm going to start with a story that really is me kind of like showing my hand of the fact that I'm from the United States. Um, And at the moment in the room, only Dylan and I are are the Americans in the room. So, okay, okay, yes, so there's a few. And many of you, yes, okay, so if there's, yes, and many of you have lived in the States at various times, but this is kind of revealing a little bit of my childhood here and uh, a little bit of the redneck that's under the surface of my life, right? Um, so when I was a kid, we grew up in a pretty small town, and there was a, uh, like a huge park in the middle of the the town, and there was baseball fields, and there was a tennis court, and there was like a river, and you could walk along, and just playground equipment, like dangerous slides that got really hot in the summer, and teeter-totters that probably did more harm than good, all of that. But there was also a huge like rodeo complex, like this like rodeo grounds, right? Um, And so when I was a kid, we would, in the summer, we would always go to the rodeo, and for whatever reason, like we really weren't like like country, country, but I had, like, when it was time to go to the rodeo, I had boots, I had a hat, I would, you know, the whole thing, we would go to the rodeo and watch. Well, at the rodeo, every year, one of the things that I was most excited about was this thing called the calf scramble. Now, does anyone, raise your hand if you have any idea what I'm referring to. Okay, good. All right, so there's going to be a picture here that gives you a little bit of a sense. So, Juan, I've got a picture that shows you. So, the calf scramble was this crazy activity where they get a baby cow, a calf, right, and they would put, like, a ribbon around its neck or something, and they would put it out there, and they'd say, all right, kids, come on, and you'd, like, climb over the fence and go into the thing with the calf, and you chase it around, and if you can, if you can be the kid that, like, gets the ribbon and, like, pulls it off, then you won a prize or something like that. You maybe you maybe even won like 50 bucks. I don't know. So I did it multiple years. Every year I'd do that. Well, this one summer, it's hot. You know, it's like a July evening. We go. I got my stuff on. I climb the fence. I'm excited. I'm going to do the calf scramble, right? Um, and so we go, and I'm chasing this thing around. And I don't remember the specifics, but I just remember I got into a situation where this calf kicked me in the forehead, okay? Now, I I. I, I don't think I was, like, seriously injured, right? But I got kicked in the forehead. All I remember was I had a literal, like, imprint of a calf hoof on my forehead, right? Very humbling experience. I did not get the prize. I was that close, right? I was close enough to get kicked in the head, but should have grabbed the ribbon, right? I did not do that. But here's the point. This calf, right? now, now you know a little bit more under the surface of my redneck life, right? Um, people do this on a regular basis. Um, I think uh, things like this happen in Alberta as well. Um, but that's the calf scramble, all right? So if you ever get a chance to do it, it's great. I think I also did something at one point in time where I tried to catch a pig that was like all like grease, greasy and like in mud. And I was not quick enough. I did not have those athletic skills to catch a pig, right? So anyways, here's the point. Picture in your mind, little like probably eight-year-old James with the imprint of a calf hoof on his forehead, right? It left an imprint on my head. So this is all going to connect, right? Our main point this morning for the sermon is this, that faith produces humble submission 
to God. So true faith and real faith in us produces humble submission to God. In other words, our real faith makes us like Jesus because Jesus lived in humble submission to God. And when, when that faith produces that in us, when humble submission to God is what's happening in our lives, that is the imprint of Jesus being put on our lives. That is his mark being left on us. That is us being more like Jesus. So ask yourself these questions. Ask ourselves these questions this morning. How can we look more like Jesus in our daily lives? How can we guard ourselves from a faith that is hollow, boring, and maybe even fake at times? Because we all have a tendency to get into these phases in our life where our faith, what we believe, is not actually what we're living out. We need the imprint of Jesus on our lives. We need lives of humble submission to God. All right, tracking with me? So humble submission to God. Um, as we continue in our series, we're going through the book of James. We have, I think, maybe three more left, three more weeks left of this. Um, and our hope the whole time, and as we've been in this series, is that we can see God working in our lives, deepening our faith in him, and that the result would be that we are living out our faith in a real way in the real world. That the faith that we pro pro um, profess, proclaim, the beliefs that we proclaim, will actually be the way that we live. Now, we need God's grace to do that because we fail and we're prone to like sin and weakness and all those things but when God is working in us it produces stuff in our lives there is fruit there's evidence from that so today we're starting James chapter 4 so you can turn there in your Bible if you've got it it'll be on the screen as well and this is a side mini a miniature side sermon right it's this guys we have such a treasure in the Bible in God's word the Bible is not just another book. It's not just a book full of good wisdom and advice. It is God's word, living and active, speaking to us today. The words of God are eternal and true and lasting into eternity. God's word is a treasure. And so as we read God's word, as we listen to God's word this morning, man, let it be honored in our hearts. Let us realize that we're not just listening to some other thing. It's not a tweet, it's not a podcast, it's not this, it's not a book, it's, it's, it is the word of God that he speaks to us. So let's pray uh, before we dive in again this morning. Um, and as I start, uh, before I pray, I just want to take you to take just a moment, just to pause and be still. And allow your heart to be in that place where you can say, God, would you speak to my heart today? Would you work in me today? God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that your spirit is in our midst, that you are near, that you are not far away. And this morning we look to you as our hope. God, would you speak to our hearts? Show us how to follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read our scripture, James chapter 4. We'll start in verse 1 and go through verse 12. It says this, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? All right, there's a lot happening there, um, and so we'll kind of get into it. If you remember, in the book of James, some of the background is, James was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, so he's very pastoral here. He's writing to people, and if you remember from chapter 1, it says this book was written to the 12 tribes, meaning the Israelite people, the, 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 the followers of Jesus at that moment, who had been scattered all away from Jerusalem because of persecution. So they've kind of like scattered and gone all over the place, all over the Roman Empire and places at that time. So he's writing this letter to them as they are scattered. They're away from their homeland, away from safety, away from their community of faith. They're like out in the wild now, right? And so the passage is very direct. Like James is calling them out for the way that they are living. So I think what's happened is as the people have scattered, their faith has been challenged. They've been tempted to live for themselves to blend into the cultures around them wherever it was that they got scattered to. Most likely this is Roman Empire or Greek context where false gods were worshipped, human intellect and pleasure are seen as like the supreme things. And so they are enveloped in all these things. And so you kind of ask, well, why did James write this to them? Well, because there were issues. There were things going on among these believers in different places, probably where James was hearing about it. He writes this letter saying, hey, guys, this is important. So there's an urgency. We're gonna, you're going to hear that word here in a minute. There is an urgency to this passage. He kind of starts to speed up. A lot of the letters in the New Testament, the, you know, whether it's Paul or, or this one, the letter gets written, it's written, and then all of a sudden it just kind of speed up as if they're just like saying, almost like, and in closing, do this, do this, do this, do this, this. So that's what happens today. There's a direct urgency in this passage. So the, kind of the, the overarching big picture of the passage is this. James writes to the scattered church calling them to unity, holiness and humble submission to God. There's an urgency in the writing urging God's people to humble themselves and draw near to God rather than living out of their own selfish desires. Faith produces humble submission to God. It's what James is trying to get at here. So I challenge you, and I'm pointing at myself as well, let this scripture work in your heart today. It should make you feel uncomfortable. It should convict us of sin we can know this, that all of the, the conviction that comes, all of the discomfort that comes is the grace of God leading us to himself, where we find real life and where we find the imprint of Jesus on our lives. Four major points that I want to go through today. <clears throat> and the first one, um, an urgent call to holiness, an urgent call to humble submission, an urgent call to unity, and an urgent invitation of good news. Remember, there's an urgency here that we'll kind of wrap back around to in a moment. 
starting off an urgent call to holiness. So when we look at verses 1 through 4 and then again in verses 8 and 9, verse 1 starts by pointing to the fact that there are unity issues within these churches, within, among these groups. He said that you guys are fighting, right? And we'll get to that more in a bit, but I want to jump ahead to the root cause of the unity issues. And he says, why are there fights among you? And if you look at the second half of verse 1, it says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? And there's a, there's a reality here of the outer war, these fights and quarrels that they're experiencing, are the result of an inner war, an inner battle that's happening in them as individuals, as believers, right? Now, what does this look like, right? Um, thankfully, and I hope I never do, um, like the, the idea of road rage, like where you're just driving and you're just like, ah, you're just like yelling and like actually like harming people, all that, right? Someone who's like experiencing uh, doing, I don't know, doing road rage, that doesn't make sense grammatically, but someone who is doing that, right, it's very clear, their outer war at that moment definitely has, there's something going on in their life that is coming out of their life, right, but we know it too on a smaller scale, right, if you're married, if you have friends, if all these different things, if you are short with your spouse, or if you are like angry or just in a bad mood, most of the time they probably didn't do anything, it's your own inner battle, right, that you're kind of letting out on them. You're like, I do it. I get frustrated. I get something, something on my mind or whatever, and then I'll kind of take it out on Abby or kids or whatever like that, you know, of like speaking unkindly or being short with them or being grumpy or those kind of things. So the outer war is a result of the inner war. That's what he says. You're fighting because your passions are at war within you. And that word passions there, it's, it's really the idea of pleasures, and the root word is hedonism, which means the relentless pursuit of pleasure. So there's what it means. The people were living for pleasure, doing whatever felt good, whatever made them happy. If you want something, go get it. Do whatever it takes to get ahead to be happy because it's all about you. This sounds pretty familiar to me personally, and I know it I know that all too well. We know what that feels like, and we see it all around us because it's our human nature at work that every single one of us is prone to living for ourselves, to living and seeking to live each day for pleasure and avoiding anything that's difficult, avoiding anything that's hard. Hey, am I taken care of? Am I well-fed? Do I have what I need? Then I'm happy, right? This mindset, this, this pursuit of pleasure that they had, it was even messing with their prayers. You look at verse 3, he says, like, hey, you pray, but you don't receive, and you're not even, you're not asking, and even if you did ask, right, they weren't praying, they were, they were not praying and asking God for what they needed. But secondly, James says, even if you did ask, you would ask with wrong motives because you are only focused on yourself. That's what happens. Our selfishness impacts every part of our spiritual life, our relational life, because we are focused on ourselves. All of this to say, kind of summing part of this up, James is revealing the sinful nature of their hearts and ours as well. And he continues and it gets worse. All right, so hang on. Don't worry. It's okay. Verse 4, he calls them adulterous people. In essence, James says, you are cheating on God. You're pursuing other things, and when we pursue other things, when we give our attention and our time and our thoughts and all these to other things, in a sense, we run around on God. We're like, hey, you know, God's over there, but I'm going to go do this. And we're flirting with all kinds of things because in our sinfulness, we cheat on God. 
This was very direct, and you can go through. There's a lot of connection with the Old Testament, Old Testament prophets that would tell the people of God, you are acting like adulterous people. You are believing God, going and cheating on God with other gods and leaving God and running to all kinds of things. So this was very direct. Like, this was not him being like, oh, it's going to be okay. Just be good. He said, you adulterous people, you are believing one thing and running away from it and cheating on God. But then he goes on to say, you are enemies of God. He says, friendship with the world is enmity with God. That if you want to make yourself a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. What does he mean? Remember, James is writing to the church. These were people who theoretically had put their faith in Jesus. They were part of the church. So what does he mean by the world? Because he says, anyone that is a friend with the world is an enemy of God. So in the Bible, the idea of the world often refers to the systems of thought and beliefs of those who do not follow God. So it's not talking about creation itself, because God said creation is good. I made creation, and it's good. And it's not talking about having friendships with people in the world. It's talking about I am a friend of the world. I am aligning my thoughts and my belief systems the way I live with the way the culture around me does and says to do that. So James says, if you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. If you take a step back and say, okay, if all of this is true, this whole Christianity thing, God created everything, we sinned against him, he sent Jesus to redeem us and we can have eternal life, we step back and say, I don't want to be an enemy of that God. I don't want to be an enemy of the God who's created everything. But when we make ourselves a friend of the world, when we align ourselves with the way the world functions, hey, I'm going to think this way, I'm going to believe this way, I'm going to act this way, the Bible says you're acting, you're functioning as an enemy of God. And it's a very strong language and very direct. And I imagine that when people read this, when they first got this letter, they maybe said, hey, I love God. I follow Jesus. I'm a good person. I go to church. But it's clear here that their lives did not match up to that. They were friends of the world, living for themselves and living for pleasure. So there's an urgent call to holiness. Let's look at verses 8 and 9. And again, this is very, just like very short statements where he says, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, all these things. There's a um, guy named Eugene Peterson wrote the message paraphrase. It's not really a translation of the Bible. It's more like his thoughts put into it. Um, but he, he wrote this. Um, he kind of took this verse and made it say this, which I really liked. And he says in verses 8 and 9, it kind of says, Quit dabbling in sin. Purify your inner life. Quit playing the field. Hit bottom and cry your eyes out. The fun and games are over. Get serious. Really serious. When you look at that in, in the passage, it says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. There's a seriousness. There's an urgency where he's saying, purify yourselves. He's writing to these people in this real places who were not honoring God with their lives. He's saying, hey, deal with your sin. Purify your hearts Purify what's going on in your heart and cleanse your hand. Purify what you're doing in your life, the inside and the outside. And then he says, be wretched, mourn, weep, feel miserable, right? This does not sound like very enjoyable, but he's saying grieve because there is a seriousness to sin. And that's what he's trying to convey. You have cheated on God. You are functioning as enemies of God. 
you need to deal with this sin because sin destroys us and sin is directly opposed to God. And he's telling them, you need to feel the weight of that. You need to feel the seriousness of sin, that sin is not just, okay, I can do that and I can love God and whatever. There's a seriousness to sin. And so this morning, can you let yourself feel the weight of your sin? I don't know where you are right now. I'm not saying that every person in here is just like willingly walking in sin right now. I don't know. But think about either past times in your life, or you may have to think about things in your life right now where you need to say, you know what? I need to realize the seriousness of the way that I'm living and the attitudes of which I'm living and deal with it and mourn over that and grieve over that because it is serious. Because there is an urgent call to holiness It's a call to the church, a call to you and I to run from sin and run towards God. So, urgent call to holiness. Secondly, there's an urgent call to humble submission. And this kind of encompasses like the main idea here. But when you look at verses 6 through 8 and then again in verse 10, that in the middle of sin and self-seeking, James calls the people to humble themselves, to submit to God. Right? To submit can be a tricky word when we think about that idea in our culture. It's kind of all kinds of things. But ultimately, to submit to God means to hand every aspect of our life over to him, to surrender to him, and to come under his authority in our lives. To submit basically means to say, okay, God, I'm yours. I'm not in charge of my own life. I am handing my life to you. Surrender. There's a humble submission in that. We see those three different times. Verse 6 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That our pride, that sin of pride that creeps into our lives so easily that says, I don't need anyone. I can do it myself. I know what's best. God says, I'm opposed to that. I'm opposed to your pride, your self-confidence, your self-arrogance, all of those things. But then what's it say? But he gives grace to the humble. So we are called into humility to that position where we're saying, God, I can't, but you can. Verse 7, he says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. He's saying, come under, like, you've got this sin, you've got this stuff going on in your life, you're living in this way, you need to humble yourself and come back to a point where you're saying, okay, God, you're in charge, and I'm not. Submit yourself then to God. Verse 10, again, he says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Rather than saying, like, hey, I'll figure it out, I will exalt myself, or whatever it is, but the humility that God is calling us to here, the humble submission. And so each of these things is a call to turn away from sin and self and turn to God. The Bible uses a word for this called repentance, to turn away from our sinful life and surrender to God. So the, the, when you read this whole passage, I, I think kind of the, the root issue that's happening underneath everything is this issue of pride or arrogance. This attitude that they had that you and I know all too well that says, I don't need God. We don't often say it out loud, but we function that way. We live our lives that way often. The attitude that says, I can handle it on my own. I'm my own boss. You can't tell me what to do. Right? And this attitude is an attitude of pride towards God, and God is opposed to it. And even this week, as I was thinking and praying, like I had to let God show me issues in my own life where there's pride, and pride is so sneaky because it's, you know, there are versions of pride where people are just like, hey, look at me, I'm the best, and you know, I don't need you, whatever. 
right? Most of the time, we don't function that way. But most of the time, the pride that creeps in our lives is, well, I don't want to look stupid in front of someone. I've got my, you know, I've got my pride here, you know? Like, I don't want to, like, well, if I say that or if I go there, if I obey God in this way, right, there's pride underneath that that wants to preserve ourselves. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So James writes in the midst of that, he says, You've got pride. There's pride going on here among these people. Humble yourselves. Submit to God. Because true faith in God produces humble submission to God. And this is what he's kind of saying in all of this. is like, hey, if you really are believing who Jesus is, there should be, your faith should be producing humility and submission in your life. Because this is, humble submission is the imprint of Jesus on our lives. Jesus lived in humble submission to God. So humble submission is the hoof print, right, on our forehead that makes us look like Jesus. That when we are living in humble submission, we are living like Jesus. So there's an urgent call to humble submission. And James is saying, hey guys, turn back to God. Humble yourselves. Number three, there's an urgent call to unity. Now we circle back to verse one, which was kind of like the beginning part of this, where he says, hey, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Which meant that there were quarrels and fights among them, right? They were arguing each other. You go look at verses 11 and 12, and we're not going to dive deep into that. He said, But he says, don't speak evil against one another. Apparently, they're judging each other. They're saying, hey, you have to do this. And there's all these things that they're doing, speaking evil against each other. There's disunity within the church. These people were battling it out with each other because of the sin and the pride in their hearts. Now, here's the problem with that. And here's kind of where that urgency comes back in. In John chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus said, the world, he's talking to his disciples, he says, the world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's very clear. And so for the church, for these people, they were showing people a version of Jesus that was not true, right? They were not loving one another and showing the love of Jesus to each other. So the urgency here comes from the fact that these people were giving the world a picture of Jesus that was wrong. They were not loving or kind. And so you look at verses 11, 12, it's more of the same. They're speaking evil of each other. They are misrepresenting Jesus to the people around them. There's a certain, and I don't say power in the wrong way here, but there's a certain influence that as a church, as believers, there's a power and an influence that we have on other people and their beliefs. That if we are living in unity, loving each other, serving each other, showing kindness, people will see the love of Jesus through us. But we have the ability and the power to not do that and to give people a picture of Jesus that no one would want, Right? We are a picture of Jesus to the world, right? Who on earth would want to become a Christian if all they see is Christians fighting with each other? There's reality. That happens far too often. You've probably experienced it in some way or another, right? That people get mad about this or that, and people, like, anyone else would just be like, well, I, I can go somewhere else and argue with people. Why do I want to do that, right? So our faith should make us look more like Jesus, producing in us humble submission to God, and that should produce holiness, and that should be evident by a growing and unexplainable unity within our church. Why unexplainable? Because I'm not talking about like, hey, let's all just be nice and get along. I'm talking about a group of people from very different places, very different backgrounds, all kinds of levels of spiritual like questions and, and growth and all kinds of things where 
in the middle of that, of people that on the surface shouldn't be together, but they are together because of the grace of Jesus. And it's unexplainable to a world to say, you guys are all loving each other and showing kindness to each other. Why? Because Jesus has loved us. The, the work of God in us produces that unity. So we must humble ourselves, submit to God, so that we can live as people truly representing Jesus to the world. So there's an urgent call to unity. And the final point here that we're going to walk through, there's an urgent invitation of good news. So in every bit of this where it feels like James is like almost like yelling at them, I don't know, right? But he's like, hey, do this, do this, do this. You guys have a problem. You need to deal with it, right? He comes in with this message of, hey, but it's not too late. There's an urgent invitation of good news that in the midst of the somewhat like direct and harsh tone of these verses, there is deep and life-changing love. So if you're listening this morning and you're like, wow, I just feel like I have a problem with sin and pride and I need to deal with it, it's true. But I want you to listen to hear the goodness of God that calls us to himself. Verse 5 is an interesting verse, right? Because verse 5 says, he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us. Think about this good news, that God is jealous for his people. In the midst of their selfish living, James reminds them of the jealousy of God. Now, this may be a weird thought because mostly we think of jealousy as a negative thing, right? We think of it as like this petty thing of like, well, you did this and I, you, why do you have this and I don't? Whatever, right? Mostly jealousy is a negative thing, right? But there is a good jealousy. So think about my, think about, I thought about Abby and I, right? We've been married for almost 12 years. I am jealous for Abby, meaning this, that if some dude walks up and starts flirting with her, he and I are going to have a conversation about it. Now, or more, right? Now, let's hope, like, he's not too big, because I have, like, zero fighting skills. Like, I'm a decent-sized guy, but I don't, like, have skills of, like, fighting. Like, if I ever, like, if I had to be in a real fight, I would just be, like, I'm just going to hope for the best and just, like, go for it because I, I don't have any, like, skills in fighting, right? So let's just hope that it's, hey, dude, that's my wife. Get away. Leave her alone. Let's hope it's that, right? But this is a picture of the jealousy of God, that he is jealous for me. He is jealous for you, that when you and I start cheating on God by running to other things to fulfill us, by saying, I don't need God, but I'm going to go because money will make me happy, or that person will make me happy, or this person will fulfill me, or I'm finding my life in my career or my whatever it is. We start cheating on God. He wants us back. He does not want us to belong to anything or anyone else. And you can say, well, that seems selfish of God. It seems a little like... Is he, like, insecure? No. This is not God coming from a place of insecure selfishness. It is God in his great wisdom knowing that there is nothing else out there that is better for us than him, that he alone fulfills our hearts, and he knows that. And he is jealous for us with a holy, pure, and good jealousy. It is not a selfish and petty jealousy where God is worried that something out there is better than him. He knows he's the best for us. The jealousy of God is an outflow of the love of God. That his love for you and I is supreme, and he will chase after you and I when we run away. This is good news for these people, right? This is good news for James to say, hey, you adulterous people, 
You're cheating on God. But this God, who very well could say, fine, you're done. I'm turning my back on you because you've just gone your own way. He says, oh, I'm jealous for you. I'm going to pursue you. I love you more than anything else. And nothing else out there is what you need. God says, I'm what you need. And James writes to them and reminds them, there is a God who is jealous for them, that wants them, that even in our sin and brokenness and arrogance, God is gracious and longs for us to humble ourselves. He invites us to draw near to him, and he will draw near to us. And we see that in verse 8. What a beautiful truth. It says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. It seems so simple. I realize in our life and our practice that can seem more complicated, but that when we put ourselves in a place where we just say, okay, God, I want to draw near to you. I humble myself. I need you. In that moment, God draws near to you. He's not going to solve or fix every question or everything in your life, but there is a reality, a promise of God that he says, if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. And verse 6 says, kind of thrown in there a bit randomly, right? It says, but he gives more grace. So all the things that really James has said, hey, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, you adulterous people, you enemies of God, but there is a God who jealously yearns for you, a God who gives more grace. In the midst of our sin, in the midst of our failure, in the midst of our brokenness, God says, you need grace? Here's more grace. Just humble yourself and come to me. You can have all the grace that you want. He says, in your friendship with the world, in the midst of your worst, God is pursuing you. He loves you. And all of this is good news, that you and I don't have to remain in our sin. We don't have to stay stuck with this, like, feelings of guilt. Or, you know, um, I watched a documentary, not a documentary, a movie um, just this week. It's on Netflix called The Two Popes. Um, if you're into um, slow, boring, dramatic, dialogue-driven films, it's great. If you're not, then whatever, right? Um, but, but it was really interesting. It's like the, um, the current pope and then the previous pope who retired, which was, like, very out of character. Like, that doesn't happen. They usually are pope till they die, right? And so there's this story, this based on true story of them like knowing each other and spending time together and there's a story in that where the current pope, and I don't know him, right? I'm not like, I'm just taking from the movie where something had happened in his younger years that he still felt guilty of and he said in the movie as he's like an old man, he said, I've spent my whole life doing penance for that thing. That is not the gospel, Right? I have nothing against the guy. I think he's a great pope, as popes go, right? But that is not the message of Jesus that says that you have to, like, get stuck and, like, well, I did this thing, so I kind of have to carry it for the rest of my life and um, always feel a little bit guilty. No, God says God gives more grace, that there is forgiveness. There is a new life that comes through Jesus. God has every right to destroy us because of our sin. Remember, our sin makes us enemies of God, but he gives more grace. This idea of good news is the message of Jesus that every single one of us are sinful and broken. And we talk about this every Sunday because we need it to sink into our hearts. We need it to deeply change who we are and remember what Jesus has done, that our sin separates us from God. And the good news is this, that God did not leave us in our sin, that through his plan of redemption, he sent his own son, Jesus. And Jesus came and lived on earth just like you and I. He lived a sinless and perfect life. 
right? The Bible has this idea of righteousness, that like, hey, you should be righteous, and like there's places that talks about the righteous man, God blesses this and that. None of us are righteous, which means right with God, right? Jesus was righteous. And so for, for us, what that means is that when Jesus died on the cross, he paid for our sin. In his purity and holiness, he died and took our sin upon himself so that And he rose from the dead, conquering death, so that anyone who turns to Jesus in faith that says, Jesus, I believe that you are the only way to heaven. I believe that you are the only way that I find life, the only way that I can get to God. And repentance, I'm turning away, I'm submitting to God, I'm turning away from my old life, that anyone who turns to God in faith and repentance is made new. Their sin is forgiven. They are cleansed and made new. And they are brought into relationship with God. Back to this idea of righteousness, That then we say, and this is so important, guys, for our daily lives, because we can still then believe all that, and that can be our experience, but we can live saying, okay, I need to be righteous today, and I'm not, if I'm not, then God's unhappy. Our righteousness is not about us. It is about the righteousness that's found in Jesus. We are not righteous because of anything that we have done. We are righteous because what Jesus has done. And it shouldn't mean that we just live, do whatever we want and live our own way and say, oh, it's up to Jesus. No, we pursue holiness. We purify our hands. We cleanse our hearts. But the foundation, the root of that righteousness is in Jesus. This is the gospel. And there is a, there is a call to respond to that. That really, in a sense, we need to respond to that every day. Where we're remembering I'm not my own. I belong to God. I don't make myself right with God. Jesus did that. Praise God because of his goodness rather than mine. Right? That's a reminding of the way that the gospel shapes our lives. But there's also a plea in that that for someone, if you do not know Jesus, you have to respond. You have to either say, yes, I believe it's true, and I give myself to God. I respond. Or you have to say, I don't believe it's true. Well, Or you say, I don't believe it's true, so I reject it. Or you say, I believe it's true, but I don't really want to do that. But the gospel, the message of Jesus, demands a response. And Jesus gives us this example, right? That none of this is out of our own goodness. Like James was not telling these people like, hey, pull yourselves together, be better. That's not what he's saying. Because Jesus is the ultimate example of this. Jesus resisted the devil. Jesus lived obedient to God. Jesus was fully submitted to God. Jesus was fully holy and pure. So there's an urgent call in this passage to run to Jesus, to surrender, to put faith in him, to trade our filthiness for his holiness. And it's good news that God does not let us do whatever we want or live our own way. He pursues us and he invites us to himself. He gives more grace. This part will be quick, but think about this. How do we apply this? I think the passage is actually, like, it's basically application from the beginning. It's very clear. He says, draw near to God. What's that look like in our lives? I think prayer. Prayer is a way that we're able to just pause and be still and say, okay, God, I am drawing near to you. But it's an attitude of the heart, drawing near to God. And so in your life, as you go through your week, think about ways that you can actively say, God, I am drawing near to you. I'm pausing from what I'm doing. I'm taking time away from other distractions to say, God, I don't know everything, but I'm drawing near to you because God says he will draw near to us. He says, humble yourself. This is, again, a very direct thing. Stop trying to run your own life. Stop trying to be your own God. 
and turn to God and say, okay, God, you're God and I'm not. Humble yourself. He says in this passage, resist the devil. In a sense, he's saying, stop resisting God and start resisting the devil and temptation. Every single one of us, like we know temptation is part of our lives. We are tempted for this or that. Some things seem minor. Some things are very serious and dangerous. But we are tempted to run away from God. And he says, resist the devil. Flee from temptation. Which really is, it doesn't sound easy to do, but it is easy to do when we are living in humble submission to God. Because we are, but when we submit ourselves to God, we are resisting the devil. Resist the devil. Resist those temptations that when those temptations come, we're saying, God, I need your grace. I don't want to give in to this. I want to put my trust in you. I want to live in humble submission. Purify yourself. Understand and mourn over the seriousness of sin. You may need to confess and deal with some sin in your life. You may need to take time to just listen and say, God, would you help me to see things in my life that aren't right? Big things, small things, things I'm unaware of. That's part of the application. He says, purify yourselves. Purify your hearts. Deal with sin because sin only keeps us from a full relationship with God. And the final point of application is this. Pursue unity. Are we loving and speaking well of those around us? Are we caring for each other? Or are we self-focused? Now, let's get really practical. Disunity comes when we say in our own brains, why didn't that person talk to me? How come so-and-so didn't call me or text me or like my post or comment on my selfie? Now I'm mad, right? These things happen in our brain, right? Because a lot of times, disunity is not out in the open where we're just like walking in here on a Sunday or going to community group or whatever and just arguing with each other. Most of the time, it can happen, but I mean, most of the time, it's far deeper under the surface where we're ticked off about something that someone did or didn't do, and so we just kind of put up a wall against them. It's disunity. It can be an internal, disunity can be an internal conversation in your own head that causes bitterness or anger towards someone else. Pursue unity. God is inviting him to us to himself. Will we draw near? Will we humble ourselves? Will we allow God to work in us, leaving his mark on us, shaping us to be like Jesus? Because faith, real faith in our life, produces humble submission to God. This is the response that God deserves, that we say, okay, God, here I am. I'm yours. I submit my life to you. As we close, I want you to think about that again, that when we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. I would say from my own life, I by no means have this figured out and have it all together in my life. I've experienced this in my own life where I've been ignoring something. I've been ignoring God. I've been doing something in my own way. But in that moment, when I humble myself, when I submit to God, when I draw near to God and the sweetness that comes when you know, okay, I've dealt with this sin. God has taken it. He's forgiven me. The guilt is removed. The shame is removed. As I draw near to God, he draws near to us.
And if you've experienced that, that in your life, then you know what I'm talking about. If you have not experienced that in your life, God is inviting you. He is saying, come, draw near to God, draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. And that simple phrase again that says, but God gives more grace. Wherever you're at this morning, whatever's happening in your life, you feel like it could be an issue of sin. It could just be an issue of just like, I am weak and I can't do this anymore. In the middle of whatever you're in, know this this morning, that God gives more grace. He is an unending fountain of grace. He never ceases that when we draw near to him, he says, I'm right there. And I'm pouring out my grace upon you because I love you. God gives more grace for the trials, for the struggles, for the difficulty, for the sin, all of the things that we come and say, okay, God, I humble myself to you, before you. And maybe someone else or someone different than God would say, okay, good, now you have to earn your way back into my love. That's not what God does. God gives more grace.